Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Our guest today is the Most Reverend Dr. Benjamin Kwashi from Nigeria, the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Jos in northern Nigeria. Your Grace, we're honored to have you at Beeson Divinity School today. Thank you. You've come to present our Reformation Heritage Lectures with a special focus on the Reformation in Africa, especially the impact on preaching. And we're very much enjoying what you have to say to us, and we're going to talk about it today on the podcast. But I wonder if you would begin just by telling us a little bit about how you came to faith in Christ, your own family background in Nigeria. I will. Thank you, Dr. George. I'm so blessed um, and privileged to be in this community and to be the Reformation speaker uh, this time around. Um, my father was a mission school teacher. Um, he was brought to faith by Max Warren, a missionary, mm. and um, they took him on. Uh, Max Warren was a very famous uh, ecumenist also. That's right. For church unity. That's right. And, and reaching out to Muslims. Mm -hmm. he, he walked in northern Nigeria. And then um, he fell ill after some time. And so he passed my father on to Bishop Bullen. So my father has come to faith through the missions. Mm. And um, my mother was the daughter of also another product of the missionaries, the first class of the catechist training in 1919. Um, so both my father and mother, therefore, were uh, Anglican products mm. um, of the gospel. And morning and evening prayer was part of the routine in the family, and the prayer book played a big role in the family. So that's how I grew up. But I didn't know Jesus. I was mm. confirmed, I was baptized, but I did not know the law. Uh, that was obvious because when Brother Dominic led me to Christ in 1975, towards the end of that year, I, 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 I cried. Mm. Um, he shared, he witnessed Jesus to me, and I couldn't go to the town no more. I, everything about me changed. And that was the beginning of me getting to know who Jesus is. Mm. And, and um, I disappeared but now I went back home and my mother, my mother who, who had known me and never knew peace since she knew me, <laughs> now had peace in seeing me. And that change in my life yeah. since then is what the Lord has been working in my life to this day. So you were blessed to come from a Christian family and yeah. Christian parents who loved you and prayed for you. And, yeah. and, and yet your ministry has taken place at, uh, at a border of Christianity and Islam in northern Nigeria, where there's a great deal of conflict. And I wish you would say a little bit about what it's like to be a Christian in a situation of conflict and even violence. Earlier in my ministry, uh, my bishop had posted me to Zaria, which is the academic city in the north of Nigeria. And I began ministry there. But there, in the early 80s, it became fairly obvious that um, Islam was no longer going to tolerate Christianity. We thought it was a joke because the rise of Ayatollah Khomeini and all of that. But by 
1987, over a hundred churches were burnt mm -hmm. and a few Christians killed with several businesses and property of Christians burnt and destroyed by Muslim arsonists. Uh, the miracle, of course, at that time was that I was the leader of the Christians at that time, the ecumenical movement called Christian Association of Nigeria. I was the chairman. And I felt the Lord, I heard clearly about 2, 3 a.m. in the morning to tell the Christians to do nothing. Mm -hmm. So early hours of the morning, I got Christians dispatched this message throughout. And Christians stood still and watched their properties destroyed and burnt. Mm -hmm. That was a major miracle. Mm. And that was also a great testimony to the church. Mm. And I was to carry this testimony when I became bishop in Jaws. Mm. Now, Jaws is basically um, a majority non-Muslim, but it is bordered by Sharia states. Mm. Uh, Boucher on this side, Kaduna on the other side. And um, so I think that the, this is my thinking, the Muslims find it odd that Joss should be where it is and not be Islamic. Hmm. So the push to press on to Islamize Plateau State is a reason, in my opinion, why from 1994, there has been um, an advance of violence on the city of Jos and on Plateau as a whole. And um, I think that um, they're looking for the reaction of Christians. And um, at any excuse at all, they will import fighters and they will fight and so on. And that has gone on from 1994 then there was a huge break until 2001, and then from 2001 to date. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about your ministry, the ministry in the Diocese of Jos, and you in particular, your church, what, what you were doing there to serve the cause of Jesus Christ? First of all, I think that um, what I'm doing as bishop has to do with um, the call of God on my life. What, what attracted me most that uh, Jesus laid hold of me at the beginning as a youth coming into Christ and going into ministry was rural evangelism. Mm -hmm. I admired the missionary work. I read history of missions and it, it just fascinates me what the missionaries did and they were young. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to do what the white missionaries did to our parents, these young people. And so I'm basically called to be a royal evangelist. So then I become a bishop. And then I realized that bishops are, are very important people. They are. And um, they, they, are, they are kept apart. They are secluded. And they hardly talk to human beings. They talk to angels and archangels. So, <laughs> so I, I, I knew that I would not fit. So I had to carve out from that mold and I found it worked. So I'm the leader of my own missions. I'm the pastor of the diocese. I'm the trainer of the pastors. I do what any normal pastor would do. 
And I found great fulfillment in it. I founded churches on my own with my wife. In fact, two weeks ago, my wife founded two churches on her own with wow. her women. So we're doing that. So it's not a typical image of bishop we carry. So you are an activist far more than a bureaucrat, let's say. That's true. Yeah. But I do reply to emails. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your wife, Gloria, and yeah. I, I want you to say something more about her. We had hoped so much she could be with us yes. on this visit. She's yes. not able to come. Yes. and We send her our greetings uh, back in Nigeria. Mm. Tell us a little bit about Gloria. Well, Gloria is a, is a woman I don't think I understand anymore because only she and God know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> She's a wonderful woman, I must say especially lately in the last 15 years of, of our marriage. Uh, we've been married now 32 years. She suddenly blossomed in her life and walk with God. She started bringing in children, particularly those that have been thrown away, abandoned and left for dead, children mm. with HIV and AIDS, into our home mm. and started nursing them in our home. And before long, communities have heard that there's one woman who takes just anything. And at one point I came back home, I met 12 children, and another time I met 24. Before you know it, there were 36, now 52. So I had to put an embargo at 52. So what we did, what we're doing now is to build, uh, we've built a school already for all these 400 now children. She feeds them, she clothes them, she gives them their uniform. Um, sweaters, blankets, towels, toothbrush, toothpaste, socks, shoes, and those. She does all of that. And I must tell you, George, she's ruined my retirement. <laughs> I have no savings left <laughs> because of these children, and that's what she's doing. And, 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 um, and in fact, the reason she couldn't come now was because three weeks ago, she had another almost 30 kids and so she has to stay back to bring them in properly otherwise it would take her a longer period if yeah. she had come with me to go back and then to do that sure. some things would have gone wrong within the first yeah. week and there's so a book about her tell us there the title is, of that the title of that book is gloria the archbishop's wife um it's written um by abidemi sanusi who is a british writer a nigerian born british writer she is in england was commissioned to do this and uh hippo uh zondervan have published it Wonderful. and it's on uh, amazon yeah uh, and kindle gloria the archbishop's wife yes good mm. now, i want to ask you about preaching uh we we're focusing on that in our lectureship and you mentioned it uh in your lectures here at Beeson. Tell us about uh, preaching the gospel in an African context. How, how, how does that look? And what, how do you prepare for that? What do you do for that? Well, we come from a tradition in the Anglican Church from Ajay Crowther, Bishop Samuel Ajay Crowther, who was the first black Anglican bishop consecrated in 1864 by the Church of England and mm -hmm. sent out as missionary uh, to the Western Equatorial Territories beyond the Queen's Dominions. Earlier on, he had been a missionary of CMS under Henry then in 1842 mm. and led the missions and did a fantastic job. Nobody has been able to equal it till mm. date. Mm. And you bear in mind that when Crowther began ministry, there were no cars, no nothing, mm. no customs, no immigration, nothing. And yet between 1842 and 1867, when he had his first synod, he had people travel for months, mm. no government. Mm. They came to Onisha 
for his synod. So he was a fantastic, uniquely talented, gifted, blessed man of God. And he preaches simple sermons from the prayer book and from the Bible. Mm. And uh, if you read his journals, you would see. And that style of preaching mm. is what gave birth to the church in Nigeria. And his disciples, in the generation that followed, those he trained, because he didn't have theological schools, so there were people he trained or probably sent them to Sierra Leone in Fora Bay, uh, or sometimes um, Henry then would have them sent to England for a couple of months. But the style of preaching was based on the revivals of the 1700s that gave birth to the missions, the Reformation periods. Mm. That style of preaching. Mm. And he would take his time to explain the text of Scripture. Uh, that could take an hour or two. And at the end, make a demand for commitment. Mm. And people responded to Jesus. And he would pray, exercise, miracles happened. So it was a regular feature mm. of the ministry of the priest or the bishop. That is our background. Yeah. So in Nigeria, uh, we've come from that tradition where the text of scripture plays a very central part of the teaching mm. and preaching. Both go together on the pulpit. And at the end, there's a demand for a response. Mm. Whatever the response may be. Those who are repenting of their sins will come crying. Uh, mm. People who needed prayers will just come out. You know, there's always that aspect. Yeah. So the Bible is a central part of the ministry of the preacher. You know, in the Reformation uh, in 1563, the Second Helvetic Confession yeah. declares the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God, yeah. which indicates a confidence in the Scriptures, in its truthfulness, in its power, in its ability to connect us to the reality of God that I find sometimes lacking in our modern Western churches. We struggle with that. Uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why Christianity in Africa seems so vibrant. It's so alive. And in some ways, it's a witness to the rest of the world as to what God can still do if we are obedient to him and to his word. Yes, you're right. Because my generation have studied and we've read several books and um, we've gone through some of the modern trends in the Western churches and the uh, biblical work that has been done around scripture. But I have found that in spite of my studies, I still have found God's word at work. And whatever I'm going to say, whether by exegesis or by whatever research I've arrived at, I come to the conclusion that this word, the written text, is authority. Mm. Mm. And I think that in that way we draw from the reformers because in their time, as in our time in Africa, miracles still happen mm. from the pulpits. People turn to Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, uh, people weep um, their sins and and, and, and recant any evils that they had done before uh, to turn to God. 
You mentioned that every year you read through the Bible with your pastors, those who are under your care. Uh, why is that so important, that pastors should be immersed in the scriptures that way? Well, walking in the north of Nigeria, we have learned that the Muslims, before you were ordained to be a leader of a mosque, you have to recite the 60 chapters of the Quran. Mm. And no wonder the Muslims believe, even though we say they believe in error, but they believe with their whole heart, mm. even unto death. Now, if we have the genuine gospel, mm. and our gospel is genuine, why shouldn't we immerse ourselves even more than the Muslims in memorizing scripture, the whole of it? Mm. So, in order that people be not discouraged because backgrounds are different we, we we go on reading and by the time you've read it for 10 years hmm. you love it the stories you see yourself in it you see all other people in it and then you get familiar with some of the stories and then you speaking scripture becomes no longer a, a drudgery or, or a routine it becomes a life hmm. and it's something you can talk to and talk about part of your contemporary of your, exactly. experience yeah, yeah. What about prayer? You know, um, again, uh, we often pray at the beginning of a sermon. That's a good Reformation thing to do. Um, as you're preparing for sermons, as you're thinking about the unction, the power of the Holy Spirit in your prayers, in your sermons, what is the role of prayer? In that, that is the secret. That is the secret. It is what you do in your closet that Jesus says that God rewards openly. Mm -hmm. So prayer is at the heart it comes to, like St. Benedict would say, Divina Lectio. Mm. It's with the research, the struggle through to find and to be sure that what you want to say is God's word. That's the background we come from. I, I know of an archdeacon whom I learned from. I was a young catechist at that time. Saturday night, he doesn't sleep. He mm. spends Saturday night just praying. Mm. Praying for his church, for the people. I had to learn that until date. Um, my Saturdays, if on Sunday morning somebody says, did you sleep well? I said, nah, <laughs> I can't sleep well on Saturdays yeah. because that's the day you carry the burden to push through God's word. If God doesn't bless what you prepare, it's a waste. Yeah. So Are you preaching every Sunday yourself, every yes, week? Yes, every yeah. Sunday. In a every, different church or one congregation? No, different churches. Yeah. Um, every Sunday, every Monday. Mm -hmm. um, actually, <laughs> at least three times a week. In your sermon uh, in chapel here at Beeson, you, you used a text from Luke 10 about Jesus sending out the 72 as uh, lambs in the midst of wolves. It's a very graphic image, and you really brought that home to us, lambs in the midst of wolves. Would you give us a synopsis of what you were saying to us? I was very moved by that. Well, I was trying to make the point that um, preaching in the midst of persecution is not that we are unaware of persecution, but we were obeying a command. Jesus is the one who's sending us. So if you're not sent, um, it would be a crisis. So the first lesson you were to learn was what Jesus said, pray. Hmm that the Lord of the harvest will send people. So this lamb 
it's a helpless, I mean, Matthew is a lamb, it's not a sheep even. Mm. So it's helpless, totally dependent on, on Jesus Christ, the shepherd, in prayer and for everything. Mm. And now he says, go. And the lamb is most likely going to, in our own language, in quotes, foolishly just obey. Mm. But that's what God is looking for. Mm. That which looks like foolishness in the eyes of men, a lamb will just go. Mm. And the fox is seeing the lamb and is wondering, what's happening to this stupid thing? Why is it coming? Yeah. And the lamb itself is beginning to get worried. But we see that the lamb does conquer the wolf. Mm. The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. David conquered Goliath. Jesus took all of that on the cross. The Lamb of God who sits on the throne. And that's what God wants us to be. Yeah, it's great. And in the Revel book of Revelation, exactly. we, see we see the, the, the lamb, lamb, the lion and the lamb together yeah. around the throne of God. Mm. So what a great image for us. You also talk about the wolves in terms of kind of an external threat. You mentioned persecution. You live yeah. in the midst of persecution. <laughs> and yet the also threats that are internal, that maybe are more insidious in a way. Yeah. Say a little bit about the external and the internal wolves that we have to face in the church. The external ones are fairly obvious. Um, the churches in Iraq, they know that. Middle East, Syria, Somalia, northern Nigeria. Um, people who want to kill the church outrightly and they've declared it. They don't want the cross. They wipe it all out from the face of the earth. Mm. Uh, like in the time of Domitian or Domitian and so on. But there is yet another one from within. Mm. And Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that these kinds of people are going to rise from among you. Mm. Their aim is to inflict double injury. While mm. you are being persecuted from outside, they are persecuting from inside insidiously, although not so obviously. Mm. Mm. And so their main aim is to diminish the image and power of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, they come in to struggle for power, for position. They come in to, to make others feel um, less important. They come in to create barriers, um, whether by race or by tribe or even by gender, uh, they come in, in different forms. And we've, we're seeing them in my small life in, in, in the church. I've seen all these kinds of things, and we need to be aware that they exist. And the only way we can combat them is with love and truth. Mm. Um, in the Anglican Church, my first experience of the way open internal um, persecution was in Lambeth 98 when clearly we were being told that um, the theology has changed. Mm. And my question was, what theology did the missionaries bring that led our parents to Christ up to now? Mm. What would we tell the people now? Mm. And in any case, the same theology that missionaries brought is still at work mm. and people are coming to Christ mm. and we're seeing it now how could we deny that mm. and that has brought a conflict uh, in the church but George I'd like you to think with me please 
if I am being persecuted by Islam, and now in the Anglican Church I am being persecuted from within, isn't that double jeopardy for me? Hmm. <laughs> so that's that's the 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 inside one doesn't seem to care what you're going through wherever you are, and then put all my other problems on top of it. Uh, there's HIV and AIDS, there's poverty, there's poor governance, there's no light, no good health care, no basic amenities of life. And the only thing that makes sense to help me survive in those conditions is the Bible. And now somebody comes and say, the Bible is wrong, throw it away. Mm. Meanwhile, the Muslims are killing me for the sake of the same Bible. So this is the inside one that is completely insensitive and really, to be honest with you, irresponsible because the the self-centeredness of the approach of the inside um, persecution is, is very strong and doesn't care what happens after that. Now, when the missionaries you talk about from the CMS and other groups came to Africa, the challenge was seen as to Christianize Africa. But today... Perhaps the challenge is to Africanize Christianity, especially to Christianity in the West that is so accommodated and maybe lost the very thing you're talking about, the heart of the gospel itself. We're in danger of that. So we have a lot to learn from you and those who have been faithful under duress uh, to Jesus Christ and to his word. And uh, we admire you. We thank God for you. And we pray for you. And we just have a few minutes left. I wonder as you're speaking now to a lot of Christians around the world who will listen to this podcast, but especially to those of us in North America and Great Britain and Western Europe, what would you say to us as a way of uh, encouragement or admonition in this moment? The first thing I'll say is that God has blessed the Western church. The Western church is tremendously rich in grace and in wealth and in knowledge. Okay, there may be a few still holding on. I would say, please hold it. Because the research, the biblical, honest biblical, truthful research is still in the West. The, 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 the books are in the West. Um, and the wealth, financial wealth, is still in the West. Th these are great blessings. And hold on to it. It may look difficult and all oh, the churches are falling apart, but this few, I believe with my whole heart that no matter how weak and small a church is, mm. it remains the single instrument of salvation in the hands of God to that nation. That's the first. The second is I'd appeal to the Western brothers and sisters to believe and to act out their belief publicly. It's time now for Christians to stand up for what they believe mm. and move out of the culture. Mm. But thirdly, I think partnering is the word right now. I think that's where God is leading the church worldwide. Mm. Because now the fewer Christians in the West, Orthodox Christians in the West, now know that there are more brothers and sisters in Asia, in Africa, in uh, Latin America. So it's now a world partnering to reach the world of unbelief. Mm. Those are the three things I would encourage us to. It's our challenge. Thank you so much. Thanks. My guest today on the Basin Podcast has been the most Reverend Dr. Benjamin Kwashi. 
He is the Anglican Archbishop in the Diocese of Jos in northern Nigeria. Thank you so much for this conversation, Your Grace. Thanks, George. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.